John Perry, great to see you again. Thanks so much for coming on to Talk Beliefs all the way from your new home in Canada. So how's it been going since we last spoke? You've been uh, to Ecuador doing some old David Attenborough things, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I went to Ecuador. We're putting together a tour that's going to be in that's January 9th through the 11th, which, by the way, anyone in your audience is welcome to join too. Uh, we're, uh, I'm working with Nancy Mirelli. She's an entomologist down there. And... She's she usually helps researchers, you know, go on tours and find the insects that they're interested in studying. But we're putting together a little evolution tour for the public. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be at yeah, 10 days, well, 11 days, technically, going around and exploring the jungles and the coastline of Ecuador. And yeah, it's going to be really cool. You're known for the very, very successful Stated Clearly YouTube channel where you present your simple and easy to understand digital animations about science and evolution. You also Mm -hmm. run the Stated Casually channel, which you host and talk about science and answer viewers' questions. And you even use these presentations at uh, schools and colleges, which is pretty cool. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm always eager to find out what's coming up next on those channels. So what are you working on at the moment? Um, Yeah. You've just released something new, haven't you? Right. Yeah, I just released a video on metabolism and what is metabolism. Food, water, and oxygen are constantly consumed by your cells. Waste products like CO2 are constantly expelled when you breathe. I'm, I'm working on a second version, a second video for that, which talks about the metabolism first hypothesis for the origin of life. But before that gets published, I'm going to be publishing a video, what is a molecule for um, the, uh, UC Irvine mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, I've been doing a series on chemistry and I'm starting to wrap that up um, and then I'll be going full force on evolution stuff in the future so well our original talk beliefs interview dealt with the development of your stated clearly YouTube channel but today mm-hmm. we're going to address this contention often brought up by creationists and evolution skeptics in general the notion that evolution isn't really science because it's according to them not observable not repeatable not testable nor falsifiable so we're just going to go through those one by one and see if those criticisms are true but before we start john let's just be clear on what a scientific theory is it's an explanation that links together a bunch of observations so you know, if you have, uh, so germ theory, for example, people are getting sick. Uh, we used to think that it was bad smells that made people sick. And so people would, when diseases were breaking out, they would, they would put a lot of perfume on and so on. And so that, that's actually called the anthasma theory of disease, where bad smells cause disease. And this, that, that theory was put together with a bunch of observations, you know, you you smell this bad stuff and then you end up getting sick. And that actually was, those are legitimate observations, right? And so people came to this conclusion that the bad smells caused the disease and they were sort of right because one of the things that's in something that smells bad is bacteria, right? You're actually smelling bacteria and rotten, you know, um, disease causing agents sometimes when you smell bad smells, but 
they didn't understand, they didn't have all of the data there. And so as we started to understand that microorganisms are a thing, we started realizing that it's these germs that are causing disease and a bad smell is just one cue that there are germs around. So the theory was replaced. We now have germ theory that's replaced antasma yeah. theory. And this is a pretty good model for how science works. So we, 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 we take the observations that we have available to us. We try to put them together in some sort of a coherent picture, an explanation. And then we use that explanation to hopefully go and find more data. If we don't have an overall picture of how something works that we can think about and kind of bounce our ideas off of, our exploration in science is there's there's no direction, right? So a theory really gives scientists a way to direct their experiments and so on. And a lot of times you'll hear people talk about falsifiability. Like a, a good scientific theory should be falsifiable. And this comes from Karl Popper, who was really concerned with, you know, theories that were coming up in psychology that were basically just, just, statements of belief um people would say you know freud freud was coming out with a lot of things saying oh um you know there's these <laughs> a lot of a lot of things are caused by penis envy and so on and uh you know he would just kind of make things up and propose these as if they were scientific theories and popper realized that well there's no way to falsify these statements that he's making Therefore, they're not really scientific theories. There's something else. He's just, he, he, he called it pseudoscience. Um, and so for a long time, there's, there's, there's this huge emphasis on if you have a scientific theory, it needs to be falsifiable. So that, it means that there needs to be something you could do to prove your theory wrong. And from that kind of philosophical basis in in science people set out to try and disprove their own theories disprove um the different ideas that they were investigating and that's still a pretty big part of science but large theories once a theory really becomes big the theory of evolution is germ theory is really big the theory of evolution is really big what i mean by big is they encompass tons of data sets it becomes harder and harder to just actually falsify a theory the bigger it gets because there's so much data and there's so much supporting that theory that when a theory gets to a certain size it's really not falsifiable anymore it has to be replaced so um we saw germ theory replace its you know earlier theories about what causes disease and the reason for that is that there's the scientific community will get momentum with with an idea and if you just say, oh, well, that idea is false, that leaves kind of this thought vacuum that you really need to fill it with something else instead of just saying, oh, that's false. When the theory gets really big, it needs to, if you want to change a theory, you need to replace it with something better. And something better would explain the facts, uh, all the facts that we currently have, plus start leading people to new facts. And the theory of evolution did that uh, when when Darwin published his theory theory of evolution by natural selection, it replaced the current ideas about why there's a diversity of life on Earth, and it accounted for all of the facts that we already had, and it started leading us to just 
thousands and thousands of new facts that helped guide our research into all the discoveries that we've been making now in genetics and all sorts of things in medicine and, and biology and so on. So it was a very revolutionary theory. It really changed how we do biological research. Let's start with these skeptic claims. Uh, the first one is a biggie, that uh, evolution is not observable. This is what creationists point to the most as a big fly in the ointment, the notion that since you can't actually see evolution happening, that is, species changing over millions of years, that it's only speculation, or as they like to call it, uh, a fairy tale for grown-ups. So let's get this one out of the way first. Is evolution observable? Evolution really talks about two main things. There's two, two big parts to it. First of all, it's the idea that all life on earth is related. And so that's, that's a historical claim, right? And then you have the idea that evolution happens through natural processes. And there's observations that demonstrate both of those things. I think a lot of what creationists are upset about is that these historical claims that life, life is all related. Those things can be observed by looking at the fossil record. I mean, fossils are real observable things. You can go and dig them up and you can look at them and you can show them to someone else and they're going to see the same thing that you're seeing. And the more carefully you study these fossils, uh, you can start to, to discover clues about um, you know, the best ways to interpret the fossil record. Yeah, it's and like so, forensics, isn't it? I mean, right. it's like when... when a murder happens, you've got all these clues, you've got a body, you don't see the murder happening. Right. So similar right. to that. When, when Darwin first proposed this idea, um, and actually, if you, if you read The Origin of Species, he says, I don't know how, how far back my theory works. You know, maybe, maybe there's a thousand original species that were first created. It, Darwin, kind of depending on the version of, of his book that you're looking at, he gives more credence to creationism or less because uh, there was, it was creationism was the main idea in his time. There was a, uh, it's not the same as young earth creationism is today, but there was a, um, just kind of an assumption that the biblical God created everything because all of the, all of the biologists at the time that were in Darwin's circles, they were all Christians. Um, Science wasn't really an international endeavor at that time. It, it was, but the scientists from different cultures weren't communicating with each other. So you could have things like religious ideas that, that would be seeping into science and nobody would even notice. It's so much, it's the water that everyone was swimming in that they wouldn't even notice. Um, but so, so Darwin had this, you know, he said, I don't know how, how far back you can take this, but species split from each other and the diversity of life that we see today, you know, there are common ancestors and there's this evolutionary process. And uh, he made predictions that, you know, we should see when we go back in the fossil record, we should see forms that are very distinct today. As you follow them back in the fossil record, they should become less distinct and they should actually there should be a common ancestor between them. And just two years after he published his book, Archaeopteryx was discovered. That's right. And that was absolutely huge. And this is a, this is a very obvious observation confirming the predictions that Darwin had made. Now, of course, this is a prediction of 
an animal that existed in the past. Um, and sometimes <laughs> creationists that uh, don't want to understand this, that are working hard not to understand this, will try and say things like, oh, well, that's not a prediction because it's something that existed in the past. The predictions are for the future. But it was <laughs> it was a discovery that happened in the future, right? I mean, Darwin made his theory, and then in the future, two years in the future, we discovered this fossil um, that that was a huge confirmation. And it, w- it was a really big deal because Archaeopteryx shows a very clear intermediate between uh, reptile-like ancestors mm-hmm. and modern birds. And it was just spectacular. you got this animal with claws and teeth and a big, long reptilian tail, and it's got feathers. It was absolutely stunning. Uh, and I think, I mean, it was really just serendipity that that discovery was made so quickly after um, Darwin published his theory and that it was made by people that hated Darwin. So the, you know, Richard Owens, he was the guy who, um, who described Archaeopteryx and he was, he was an anti-evolutionist. He was very much against the theory of evolution, but he had this fossil and he has had integrity to describe it accurately. And it was, then uh, on display in the the Natural History Museum. So um, it was just everyone could see what it was. Um, So it's a very interesting time in the history of science. And that was just the first of many, many discoveries that just confirmed, confirmed, confirmed Darwin's, Darwin's ideas. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. And that fossil is actually not too far away from me in the Natural History Museum in London. Yeah. I think it is yeah. that first. I know there's about 12 specimens, aren't there? But that was the that one that you were talking about. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I've got, I've got to see that up close, which is, which is quite exciting. <laughs> right, right. So, so there's... So we can observe evolution happening when we look in the fossil record. We can actually just observe it. We can observe the uh, the histories of these different organisms throughout throughout the history of the fossil record. So that's that's if you want to if you want to observe the idea that we all share a common ancestor, you look you look at the fossils. That's that's where you can actually see that. Um, the other way that we can observe evolution is we can observe evolution happening today, of course. And we observe that with experiments in the lab, but we also, ex- we also observe that with like the production of domesticated crops and domesticated animals. I've got <laughs> behind me, I've got some dog skulls here. Cool. So this here, I'm not sure how well this is going to show up. This is a wolf skull. And here, which is significantly larger, um, th- th- that wolf, by the way, it's a it's a Mexican gray wolf, which is one of the smaller gray gray wolves. But when we look at the fossil record of dogs, it seems that they came from a uh, a, a mid sized uh, species uh, subpopulation of gray wolves. 
Um, this here is a Great Dane, and it's significantly larger. And But it looks very similar. I mean, the, the snout is shorter, but uh, compared to the wolf's snout, mm-hmm. I mean, overall it's larger, but the snout's a little bit shorter. Other than that, it looks a lot like a wolf's skull. Then... You've got this, this is a, a white terrier, which looks extremely different yes. from a wolf. And actually, if we would if we would have found this in the fossil record, we would have thought that it was a different species. It's, it's significantly different. And then you've got a French bulldog right here. Wow. Oh, yeah. You could probably guess that. <laughs> right. And these extreme variations... Uh, if you just look back at historical records, you can see pictures of these different dog breeds and they, they're not nearly as extreme as they are today. And we, we've been able to uh, selectively breed dogs to, to get all these weird forms really in a matter of the, the, uh, the past few hundred years, a lot is, is when most of this, these changes have happened since kennel clubs started. You know, and actually, it is uh, artificial selection, not natural. Yeah, obviously. yeah. Um, now, you know, I kind of think of those things as the same. Um, you've got a, you've got an organism, you've got an organism that's evolving to fit yeah. the uh, the resources that are available in its its niche environment. And what niche environment are dogs evolving in? They're evolving in our living rooms. So, actually, you have. Um, the the flat faced dogs are super popular, uh, especially among like people who don't have children, <laughs> which is uh-huh. pretty interesting because these things trigger a a babying a, a parenting response in us. There's there's a mutation that causes the short snout. It, it stunts the growth on the top of the nose compared to mm-hmm. the rest of the skull. And actually, it stunts the uh, the length of the the skull's growth. There's a lot of really interesting changes that happen in this. It's one mutation that we found. It's in a, a gene called RunX2, and basically, it makes the gene it, it makes this protein less sticky. And for some reason, we don't know why, but for some reason, when this protein is less sticky to its target, it's it's actually a signaling molecule, signaling protein. Um, when it's less sticky, it stunts the the uh, the length of the skull's growth, and actually the bull terrier has a mutation in the exact same gene that makes it more sticky, and it causes the the top of the nose to grow way faster, and uh-huh. it curves down. So actually, if I if I were to hold this, um, if I hold the brain case parallel to the ground. Yep. It its face curves down like that. It's like its face is melted almost. If I do the same with a wolf, it sticks almost straight out. Straight out. And what's happened is you've just had rapid growth on the top of the nose because of this one mutation. And it's mm. it's really um it's really interesting. So the the bull terrier and the uh French bulldog have the opposite mutations essentially, but on the same gene. Uh and this is all stuff that has happened. I mean, we're able to do this over the course of a hundred years of selective breeding, uh, selecting for these mutations. And these dogs have been able to serve different 
these different dog groups are serving different needs for us humans. You know, you got the, the French bulldog that makes us feel like parents <laughs> and <laughs> makes us makes us feel good when we're lonely. And uh, you've got yeah, just all the different types of traits and and uh, niches that these dogs have evolved to fit. Uh, it's really interesting to think to think about this as they're evolving, evolved, evolved to fit the human ego, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this is this is an example of, of directly observed evolution. I mean, our species has been documenting the changes in morphology of these dogs over time, and now we have the ability to actually look at their genetics and see what the heck these breeders were actually doing um, when they were selecting for these traits. What, what types of mutations were happening, what types were being selected for. And it's, it's, it's a really fascinating direct observation of evolution. We'll go on to the next one. Is mm-hmm. evolution repeatable? Um, I guess the skeptics are saying that if it takes millions of years for a reptile to evolve into a mammal, then you can't repeat that. So it's a bit like it's the, is it observable thing, I suppose. Is that yeah. right? To really understand something in science, we want to be able to, watch it happen multiple times, right? There's an aspect to evolution that is is very much uh, based on chance. Like the, to get the mutation that you need to shorten the face of a dog, for example, uh, that's a chance occurrence. And then someone selected for it by, you know, letting that dog reproduce a whole bunch. And then you have basically dog breeders are then waiting for another mutation to make the face even shorter. And then, then they'll, they'll select for that. So there's, there's this aspect of evolution that really is chance and it's not necessarily repeatable. Um, but what we do in the lab uh, when we're studying evolution, so there's, there's the links, experiment, the long-term evolutionary experiment on bacteria. And what he did is he took a clone he, he made a clone of a bunch of bacteria, so they're all identical. He split them up into 12 groups, and then he let those 12 groups uh, evolve in a solution that he prepared. And so he took them, he, he put them in a slightly new environment, something that they were not super well adapted to, and different food sources than what they were used to, some food sources that they were used to already. And he let them just breed. And every day he would switch them into a new um, solution so they could breed again. And he would just every, he did that for 25 years, uh, these 12 different groups. And you can see that each group evolves slightly different traits because there's different mutations that are happening by chance in these different populations. But you get a lot of convergence on some of the same uh, on the, some of the same, even though the genetics might be slightly different, the the phenotype, like the actual, the, the look of these different microbes and the different, he, he, he's talked about, oh, I got 12 of them, so 12 tribes. These yeah. 12 tribes of bacteria, they would evolve the same phenotypes oftentimes. So it's observable of, and repeatable, but yeah. I can hear the skeptics now saying they're still bacteria. Nothing's changed. Of course, they think evolution is, you know, um, uh, salamander into a giraffe. It has to be this extreme observable change. Yeah, well, I mean, he's he's observing bacteria evolve in a very limited condition. We, we do have other experiments that are designed to get uh, more complexity to evolve. So his experiment 
wouldn't really promote complexity because what he's what he's doing is actually simplifying their environment. He's taking out there's no predators, there's no it's just the same thing they're exposed to every day. So what what you get in that case is you get refining evolution. The very first thing that happens in his experiments is the bacteria will start to lose all the traits that are not usable in that environment. Mutations, mutations that knock out a gene that they no longer even need. Those will actually be a selective advantage because now, now that bacteria, the, the, individual, the individual that lost that gene is no longer carrying this baggage that it doesn't need. You can kind of think of it as a, a soldier from Vietnam coming home. Uh, he had these, the gun, he had the helmet, he had, you know, whatever kind of body armor on. Well, if he's walking around downtown New York with his helmet and his gun, trying to get a job, you know, trying to make a living in his new environment. Bit superfluous, so yeah. Those tools are going to be a disadvantage to him. So um, when you simplify an environment the way that that they did in the Linsky experiment, you actually get a, a simplification of the organisms, and then they'll start to develop new traits that are genuinely new that help them exploit all the little niches in that, in that new environment. So you get... At first, in his experiments, what you mostly see is a simplification of the genome of these of these bacteria, and then you start to see the building up, which is much a much slower process of new traits in there. And and in some cases, you know, you have gene duplications, and then you have mutations that give new abilities uh, to these different microbes. So we are seeing genuine novel genetic information evolving in these cases, but to really get phenotypic complexity you need a complex environment with lots of challenges in it and so there's been a lot of experiments where you take like uh, I have a video that shows this uh, my video uh, what caused life's major evolutionary transitions is mm -hmm. it it shows an experiment where they took these microbes I believe they were eukaryotes they were um so they're, they're single-celled organisms, but they're fairly complex. They, they're the types that have a nucleus, and they're, they're related to us, actually. They're eukaryotes like we are, but they're single-celled. And they put in a predator that could eat them, and it could, it could swallow individuals, but it had trouble eating groups of, of these single-celled organisms. So if they were stuck to each other, it couldn't swallow them. And you saw the rapid evolution of... At, at first, they would just stick to each other like crazy. Uh, but when, when they were stuck in, in huge clumps, uh, the predator couldn't eat them. But they also couldn't uh, use resources in their environment very well. So you'd have a lot of die-offs. And over the course of a few weeks, I might have been a few months, they actually evolved the, the number seven. Seven cells would stick together, and then they would stop letting cells the, the cells would divide and, and stick to each other up, up to seven, and then they would slough off. And so you had this evolution of the, the perfect body size to avoid getting eaten by the predator, but also be able to get all the nutrients and stuff they needed from their environment. So this is really cool. Evolution of new phenotypic complexity. I mean, you went from a single-celled organism to a really simple multi-celled organism. But we just witnessed that in the lab, happening in the laboratory, so... Okay, John, the next one is testable, the idea that you can't test the evolutionary process, but tests are 
done all the time, isn't that right? Examining, for instance, what's found in strata and predicting where fossils will be found, for instance, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've kind of already gone over the actual experiments where you can actually, you can literally watch evolution happening, and you know, breeding dogs is one way to to watch change occur. These bacterial exper- experiments and so on, and then of course, yeah, making predictions about the fossil record and then going and finding those in the actual fossil record. Evolution has been well studied. It's, it was really accepted by the scientific community, the idea that we all share a common ancestor and that we evolved through natural processes. Those two ideas were really pretty much accepted by the scientific community, sort of during Darwin's lifetime, but shortly following his death. Um, it, I mean, it was, it was very quickly adopted. As far as a you know, groundbreaking theory, you know, obviously it's going to take time uh, for something to get adopted, but it, it was adopted very quickly and accepted very quickly. And since then, we've really just been using it. We've been using that theory to find new information. Um, it's not scientists don't spend a lot of time trying to prove or disprove the theory of evolution anymore because that's really old news, <laughs> you know. But yeah, we, we do experiments to try and tease out more and more the details about how variation arises within populations. Mm. So Darwin, Darwin showed us that through the process of descent with modification, so when parents have offspring, those offspring are often slightly different than their parents. That's descent with modification. So with descent with modification plus selection, you get adaptive evolution. And so scientists have been studying how how does modification arise? How does descent with modification occur? And there's all sorts of mutations that cause this. There's crossover events that happen when animals that can reproduce sexually are doing that. There's there's that can actually produce novelty when you uh, reshuffle the traits of the mother and the father. You can get novelty that way. I wouldn't really call that a mutation. It's, it's a, the reshuffling of of traits of, of, of genes. You've got horizontal gene transfer. You've got a bunch of different mechanisms that have been discovered over the years. And then scientists are trying to figure out how it is that selection works. So under different special circumstances, how is how does selection work when you have two organisms come together that could benefit by helping each other out? Under what conditions will evolution allow them to discover that they can do better cooperating versus competing with each other. So there's, there's been a lot of, there's, there's a lot of math and theory involved in, in how selection works and under what conditions, what sorts of outcomes will, uh, are we likely to see? So we've basically just been filling in the details. Darwin figured this out. Um, he was wrong about some things. He was right about, the foundational aspects of this, and we've just been flushing things out since then. Okay, John, the last one on our list is falsifiable, which, of course, you've already uh, defined for us. So uh, what would falsify evolution? Well, I guess we could just recap real quickly. When you have a theory, um, for example, that disease is caused by germs, you can falsify that by finding a disease that's not caused by germs. And we actually do have cases of that. There are some diseases that are caused by genetic mutations. There are some diseases that are caused by prions, some diseases caused by toxins that are. So uh, 
aspects of the, this idea that germs cause all diseases, that actually has been falsified by the discovery of these other things that can cause diseases. But it didn't falsify germ theory in general because we still have a bunch of diseases that are caused by germs. But it, it you can falsify individual statements. So is the flu caused by a germ? In that case, it's caused by uh, a virus. And you can falsify that by discovering, if you were to discover that, no, the, the flu is actually caused by too much lead in your environment or something. That's not the case, but that would be a way to falsify that. And so the theory of evolution being a huge theory, just like germ theory being a huge theory, it's hard to falsify the entire thing, but you can definitely falsify parts of it. And when you falsify parts of it, that causes a, re a reworking of that part of that theory. And people have, have tried to think about ways, like how would you falsify the entire theory of evolution? And probably the, the most famous example of something that would work to falsify the idea that we all share a common ancestor would be to find a rabbit in the Cambrian. Cambrian, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, been, that's been touted a lot. So, uh, and the reason that would falsify things is that we, we find that, uh, you know, before the Cambrian, the Cambrian is a, is a time period, a very early time period in the evolution of animals before the Cambrian. Five, 500 million years ago, isn't it? So there's obviously no rabbits right. at that point. Right. Well, yeah. Before the Cambrian, you have worm-like creatures and a bunch of weird things that we don't really know where they fit in the phylogeny of animals today. And then we believe that from those worms, there was a diversifi uh, diversification that happened and in the Cambrian rocks, we can start to see these differentiated animals. We see the earliest vertebrates. They're these really primitive chordates that look superficially kind of like fish. Um, you have, and they eventually gave rise to fish. You have arthropods, so things that would eventually give rise to insects and so on. But you don't have anything living on land. You don't have, well, you have plants living on land. You don't have animals living on land. You don't have, you don't have vertebrates. You don't even have things with actual backbones. Uh, you've just got really simple chordates. And eventually we see a group, we see these chordates evolve into fish. And these fish evolve into these amphibian-like creatures. These amphibian-like creatures give rise to these reptile-like creatures a group of them ends up giving rise to mammals and then a group of those mammals gives rise to rabbits. And so it's been said that if you find a rabbit in the Cambrian, that screws up our entire picture of the evolutionary history of life. Now, if it were to happen, if we were to find a, a rabbit skeleton in Cambrian rock, probably the first thing that would happen is we'd be like, are we sure that that wasn't a rabbit that, dug a hole into the Cambrian rock and died in there. We, and there's, there's ways to tell that, by the way. It's, it's not hard to, to figure that out. So that would be the first thing. It's like, this is an extraordinary claim. It goes against a whole mountain of evidence that we've already found. So people will be very skeptical of it at first. But once it was undeniable that this rabbit actually died in the Cambrian, that would dramatically uh, screw up our confidence in our history of life on earth. So that would be, that would falsify the history of life that we have uh, uh, put together. So that is, that is a way that the theory of evolution could be falsified. But of course that would not falsify the fact that 
evolution can be observed today and we can see it in the lab it seeing how so, the scientific community would deal with this would be super interesting because i actually don't know exactly how it would, how how things would change but things would definitely change so Okay. Uh, seems that evolution does meet its burden of proof, but now I guess it's up to the skeptics to decide whether or not to accept it. So what would you say yeah. to anybody who has been watching this and are still not convinced? Where could they go from here to find answers? Are you asking like, like online, what types of materials should they look at? Uh, Probably I your think... videos, I think, to start with. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Watch my videos. Um, that... <laughs> The evidence for evolution videos has been pretty helpful for a lot of people. Uh, but also the what caused life's major evolutionary transitions is really good because it shows one way in which quite dramatic complexity emerges through the process of evolution, mainly through a type of symbiosis. And so you can go and watch that and see how a lot of these big transitions happen. How did you go from single cell to multi-cell? How did you go from multi-cell to something like bees where there's this intense cooperation in the beehive, the whole hive acts as a single organism. How does it, how do these transitions happen? So that, that video is going to be really helpful. I've also got someone, how does new genetic information evolve and, and so on. There's also a series of talks that I found super helpful by Richard Dawkins. It's uh, it's like waking up in the universe there, it's a it's a series that Richard Dawkins did at the Royal Institution. He did the, the Christmas lectures there, and it's extremely well done. Uh, Dawkins now is known for being kind of this sour old atheist that is just fed up with creationists. At the time, he was younger and less bitter, <laughs> and uh, I think I think even uh, creationists will find his his. Um, talks back then a lot more, uh, a lot friendlier. Though I, I think he does take a couple jabs throughout the, throughout the talks. Um, and so, I don't know, some people might find it a little bit um, jarring to watch, but I, I really like it. He, he explains how a lot of these really complex structures emerge in biology. And that was actually the thing that got me really excited about teaching evolution is watching that series of videos. So I, I would recommend that. There are people like, uh, I know I've watched uh, lectures, which you can find on online by Donald Prothero, uh, yeah. Jerry Coyne. Very mm -hmm. interesting, and, they, and they, make it, uh, they make it palatable. They make it easily digestible. Yeah, yeah. Um, as far as books go, there's one of my favorite books is called Evolution in Minutes. And it's just that it's a book that's got a bunch of, like they're like one-page articles on different topics in evolution. Hmm. And if you use that plus the internet, you know, you, you read, you introduce the topic in that little book and then you go online and read a whole bunch more about it. Or if you use that plus a textbook, it's a really good way to, to learn things from the start. Because a lot of times I think uh, if you just read a textbook, huge chunks of what you're reading is going to be stuff you've already heard before. Same with any, any book that you read. And that's why I like this little book so much because you can, you can skip through the stuff you already understand, find out what, what you haven't heard of, and just dig in. You know, I think for someone who was raised with a creationist worldview, 
evolution is a very extraordinary claim for you if, if you happen to be in that in that camp. Mm. And so it's going to require extraordinary evidence, right, to convince you that this is something worth paying attention to. And uh, but I think if you're if you're just patient and maintain interest, if this is something interesting to you, you start reading. Eventually, it's going to start making sense. Uh, that was my my history. I was. You know, I had a type of Mormon creationism in my head when I first started this. Uh, I was raised Mormon, as some of your viewers may know. Um, and it yeah, took we, a while. We did a whole show on that, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It took a while for me to break through some of the, you know, to, to, to change my thinking a little bit. I, I guess another really good resource that I should point out is biologos.org. Because biologos.org is an evangelical group. They're evangelical Christians that are basically saying it's okay to understand evolution and study evolution. And so their website, they have a bunch of articles that address all of these things from a Christian perspective. And that, I think, is really helpful because, you know, I am now, depending on how you define atheist, I'm Basically, I'm an atheist. I think that's your case as well. Um, Richard Dawkins as well. And I think it's helpful to to see what people in your own tribe are saying about this sort of thing. And what I like about BioLogos is that they, they are evangelical Christians, but they don't compromise the science. They teach the science just as it is. I don't know a whole lot about their theology, but it doesn't seem like they're, they're letting the science muddy their theology either. They're kind Is this of then what you would call separate. theistic evolution, the idea that, oh, yeah. yeah, there's a God that kicked everything off, and then it seems that things evolved. I don't know where Adam and Eve fit into all that, but yeah, perhaps well, that's the way to look at it. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that's really important that they promote a little bit is that you don't have to know the answers in order to start studying something. Like, it's okay for there to be these conflicting ideas even in your own brain it's okay to have this cognitive dissonance to idea in science we have to do this all the time you hear of a new a new theory or a new way of looking at some data and you have the already established theory or the already established way of looking at this data and you need to take a break from that briefly to investigate this new idea to see if there's any merit to it and that type of exercise is really important. We have to constantly be able to step away from our current current worldview. I'm not saying you have to throw it away. Step aside from it and investigate something from a new perspective. That's that's a very important skill to have in life in general, you know. And uh, so that's uh, if you are a Christian and you're coming at this, and evolution might be offensive. It seems to be at odds with your religious beliefs. It's okay to just let that be the case, but study it anyways. And when you're studying it, just sincerely follow the data where you think it leads. And I'm quite convinced that if you can successfully do that, you'll come to the same conclusion I did. But um, Well, not necessarily about atheism, but you'll come to the same conclusion that there's there's something very special about Darwin's discovery of evolution. He really was on to something. And this is an important thing for us to understand. Okay, John, 
Thanks so much for coming back onto the show. I'm always excited to talk to you about your work. I will leave links to your YouTube's channels, uh, stated clearly and stated casually, in the description below. Uh, plus, of course, cool. all your social media links. And um, all that's left to say is thanks once again for helping all of us to stay curious. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It was fun.